HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Last month, Hurricane Florence walloped parts of North Carolina. According to the Weather Channel, it was the wettest tropical storm to ever hit the Tar Heel State. So how did the restaurant industry respond? Some helped FEMA weather the storm, while others got to work feeding people on the ground. We just walked in and said, we know how to cook, what can we do? They said, I need you guys to just cook 150 pork loins, and we were just like, uh, okay. (laughs) Now the attention needs to be on Florence's long-term effect on North Carolina's farming community. The general mood of farmers is one of certainly resilience and almost feels like it's the normal course of business to just get hit by a gigantic hurricane and need to just keep on going. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Okay. Yes. Hi there, folks. Hey, it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, back from the wars. Uh, we're going to be talking about Hurricane Florence and the aftermath today. I have uh, a couple of shows lined up for you. This will be part two, so you can go back and listen to part one if you missed the first one. Um, today, we're going to be talking about coal ash. Uh, and my first guest is Donna uh, Lisenby, who is the Global Advocacy Manager from Boone, North Carolina. She works for the Water uh, Riverkeeper Alliance. Um, she has spent 16 years uh, as a riverkeeper advocating for the protection, preservation, and restoration of waterways in four states. Oh my goodness, Donna, you're going to be a real resource for me. North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Kentucky. She has played a key role in bringing litigation against coal mining companies, coal-fired power plants, changing the Carolinas interbasin transfer laws. We're going to have to ask you about that. And was the first environmental advocate to report and blow the whistle on leaking coal ash ponds across the state of North Carolina. And thank God you're there, girl! Oh, thank you, Katie. You're well. You're so welcome. I, you know, I I have this is a little series on water quality um, that I am kind of, that I launched a little bit earlier. I've had a kind of funny start to my season this year, but um, 
But uh, I want to do a whole series of programs on water quality issues because I see them, uh, you know, people think only of Flint, Michigan, but actually water quality problems uh, exist throughout uh, the United States and especially in Farm Belt country. Um, So I think, uh, you know, it's important to highlight the fact that we have an aging infrastructural system here. We have a lot of uh, poorly applied or um, non-existent regulations, very little inspection. And as your bio says, you're one of the first to blow the whistle on coal ash. And I know that Duke Energy was much in the news a couple of years ago because of a massive coal ash spill. So tell us a little bit, um, first tell us what you do for Riverkeeper, and then we'll talk a little bit about the coal ash spill from uh, that was a result of Hurricane Florence. Okay. So uh, one tiny little clarification. I work for Waterkeeper Alliance. It's the international... Oh, Waterkeeper. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's the international umbrella organization um, that unifies more than 300 waterkeepers worldwide. Wow. So my job as a global advocacy manager is to work with more than 300 waterkeeper organizations and affiliates to protect everyone's right to clean water all over the world. Yeah. And specifically, I work with our global partners to stop water pollution, and I specialize in water pollution from coal. Yeah. So that must be a pretty, ex- that's a pretty extensive portfolio. I'm thinking about China right now, because not only have they heavily polluted their water from their agricultural practices, but they are an incredible coal-powered country. Um, I've been there three times, and I can affirm that they have some of the most polluted water and land on Earth. Oh, God. Well, anyway, we're, we're going to reap the, uh, the rewards of that, I think, probably pretty soon. But let's talk a little bit about what happened after Hurricane Florence. So among the many other impacts, uh, there was the flooding of, was it just one big coal ash dump that was, uh, no. that was flooded? Or Yeah, okay, so tell us the story. Tell us what it happened. Was, there were um, three different sites that contained coal ash where coal ash ponds were inundated, and specifically five coal ash ponds were inundated at three sites as a result of the record-setting flood levels on rivers in North Carolina. Right. So the three company, the, the three sites that were, had polluted uh, inundated ash ponds were the HF Lee site near Goldsboro, North Carolina, the Sutton site, near Wilmington, North Carolina, Mm -hmm. and the Granger site near Conway, South Carolina. Wow. And so how big are these? Let's let's get an idea of how big these pits are, whatever they are, that how much are they holding? How much coal ash is in there? Millions of gallons. Um, So let me just give you a little, some context and history. Absolutely. Um, So when coal-fired power plants were built across the United States, they needed two things, coal and water, to cool the plants Mm -hmm. and generate steam. So most of them were built on waterways, on lakes, streams, rivers, and even the oceans, because they needed millions and millions of gallons of water, and they burned millions of tons of coal. So it works just like a fireplace in your house when you burn any organic material with carbon in it, like firewood or coal, Mm -hmm. it produces ash. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you have to clean the ash out of the fireplace. Well, that's what happens with a coal-fired power plant, only they burn mountains of coal. And what they did is they just began using water to flush the coal ash out of the boilers into unlined ponds 
that sat right along our waterways. So today there are more than a thousand football stadium-sized wet coal ash ponds lurking on the banks of our rivers, bays, and streams all over the United States. Mm, tasty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So why is coal ash bad? Because I, you know, it's got it's mm. got quite the heavy-duty reputation. Yep. So it's just a function of geology of coal. It's just basic physics and geology. Mm-hmm. When coal is, is mined and taken out of the ground, it naturally has a whole bunch of heavy metals in it, like mm-hmm. arsenic, cadmium, chromium, lead, mercury, selenium, thallium, and the list goes on. More than 20 heavy metals in it. Jiminy. When you burn the ash, or when you burn the coal, those metals become concentrated in the ash. Some of it is released in the air, like mercury, which is liquid at room temperature. It tends to volatilize, and most of that is released in the air. But a lot of the other metals are concentrated in the ash. And so when you use water to sluice millions of tons of ash in these unlined wet ash ponds, you're accumulating an industrial waste full of heavy metals in an unlined pit on the banks of our rivers. Uh-huh. And so presumably those heavy metals are sinking to the bottom of that pit, but then yep. do they then leach through the yes. soil and into the waterways? Most of those thousand ash pits in the United States are leaking both vertically and horizontally. They're mm-hmm. leaking vertically down into the groundwater and then horizontally through leaks in the dams. A lot of these dams are earthen dams. There's no plastic liners to them. Uh And earthen dams naturally seep and leak a little bit. And so most of these thousand waste dumps are leaking heavy metals in the groundwater and into surface water. And so when, when a coal ash dump is flooded or inundated, as it was after Hurricane Florence and also after Matthew, and then in between, I think you've had several significant floods as well, if I'm not mistaken. Um... What, what the, the, so that ash is is lifted out of the of the the pond, the pit that it's in, by this, and it's mixed with a whole bunch more water, and then that is spread out across the floodplain, right? Yes, it depends on the flow, and there's been a number of catastrophic failures of coal ash dams. Um, the, the largest one in the United States was the Kingston TVA, the Kingston TVA coal ash spill um, in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. It released 1.1 billion gallons of coal ash waste into the Emory Clinch and Tennessee rivers in 2008. And have they been able to trace um, public health impacts from that, or or not? Yes. Um, so let me let me get the timing right. Um, earlier this year, or or perhaps in 2017, um, more than 180 folks who worked to clean up the TVA Kingston coal ash from the Emory and Clinch rivers started getting sick. Um, And more than 180 of them are dead or dying. And many of them were diagnosed with multiple illnesses, lung diseases, cancer, skin conditions, and other ailments that medical research has linked to the toxic metals in coal ash. So now um, they've, they've gotten legal representation and, they've, and attorneys representing 
a whole class of coal ash workers at TVA have now brought suit against um, the the people who manage the coal ash removal um, for endangering their health. Uh huh. So now let's let's bring this timeline back to the present. So you have now endured numerous flooding of coal ash dumps in your area in North Carolina, including that big Duke energy spill that happened a couple of years ago that caught my attention. Um, in the, in this case, how, how many, how many millions of gallons of coal ash has been dis- disseminated across your, the land around those various areas that you just described at the top of the show? All right. So let's take them in order. Okay. Yeah. And let me just say that most of the coal ash spills that happen when coal ash ponds either fail or they become inundated and flooded, most of the impacts happen to water. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. And that's because most of them are on the banks of rivers and lakes. Gotcha. Um, So if the water is then used to irrigate crops that has been contaminated by coal ash, it has the potential to add heavy metals to soils and crops. Right. So let's take the spills in, in the order in which they happen. So the first facility to have its flood, ash ponds flooded was the H.F. Lee facility mm-hmm. near Goldsboro, North Carolina. And there, Duke Energy has three inactive coal ash ponds. And the rising floodwaters of the Noose River fully inundated them and covered them with water. And as the floodwaters flowed across those ash ponds, it eroded the cover on those ash ponds. Okay. Duke, Duke has planted trees on them. They're not really ponds until there's a flood event now. Mm-hmm. And so the floodwaters eroded the ash and released the ash into the Noose River and Half Mile Creek branch. So there's no estimate of how many gallons of coal ash were eroded and released. Um, as far as we know, we were the only people there on the day that the H.F. Lee coal ash ponds fully inundated. We were the only people to document multiple coal ash releases on that oh. day, and we we're the only ones to collect water samples on that day. I see. Um, North Carolina DEQ was there two two days after us. They took pictures. They documented the eroded areas. But for some reason, they didn't collect any water samples when they were there, and they waited even two days after that. So they were there like four days after we were. Mm -hmm. So that's the H.F. Lee facility. Um, All I can tell you is we saw multiple uh, plumes of coal ash in multiple sites at the H.F. Lee facility that day, more than than 30. Uh Uh-huh. The second one to become inundated and impacted was the Sutton facility near Wilmington, North Carolina, and it has a very large active ash pond. It became fully inundated when a coffer dam was overtopped, and the waters of the Cape Fear River and Lake Sutton, a public fishing lake, mixed with the coal ash water, and that raw industrial coal ash waste entered Lake Sutton and then caused breaches and eroded the Lake Sutton Dam Mm. in multiple locations. And that coal ash and floodwaters then went into the Cape Fear River 
So we sampled at three of the largest breaches and at an upstream location at um, Sutton and found high level levels of arsenic and selenium above state standards. Uh-huh. The last place to be impacted and flooded was in Conway, South Carolina at the Granger facility. They have two ash ponds there, one ash pond that they had just finished excavating. It became fully inundated, but because they were ahead of schedule and had fully excavated and removed all the coal ash from that coal ash pond, our water testing didn't find any problems. They have a second coal ash pond there. They they knew it was likely to be inundated, and they did something really amazing that we have to give Santee Cooper a lot of credit for and compliment them for. Uh-huh. They spent $375,000 on something called an aqua dam, huh. and it's a big rubber inflatable uh, tube. And, it, and they encircled their only remaining active ash pond with that aqua dam and raised the height of the dam 30 inches. Right. So when the Waccamaw River reached its new record flood level, that aqua dam prevented any inundation of that ash pond. It came within two inches of Whoa. the top of the aqua dam. Amazing. And so Santee Cooper did an amazing job to protect its only ash pond from active ash pond from inundation, and they were successful. Right. Now, the thing about Duke Energy and HF Lee is it flooded in Hurricane Matthew two years ago. Right. So Duke, uh, both us and Duke knew HF Lee was going to flood again. Right. But unlike Santee Cooper, Duke Energy did not purchase an aqua dam right. and protect the HF Lee from facility from inundation, nor did they encircle the Sutton ash pond and raise the dam height 30 inches and try and prevent it from becoming inundated. So Santee Cooper did such a good job trying to prevent coal ash contamination of the Waccamaw River, while Duke did very little to prevent coal ash contamination of the Noose River and of the Cape Fear River. Right, right. <clears throat> yes. Well, that's, you know, that's, I guess, how Duke likes to play their game. Um, I, I, what I found interesting in reading up before, I, you know, preparing for this interview is that I read in um, one of your local papers <clears throat> that the DEQ, the Department of Environmental Quality, announced that despite the spills, the water uh, remains safe. And as you pointed out, they waited four days for testing um, in, the lo- in the Wilmington and... Um, well, well, actually, that was just HF Lee that took them so long. Oh, they, I'm sorry. They got okay. there a little sooner on Sutton, but still not when we did. Right. But in any case, their test results, according to the DEQ, show that all metals are below state water quality standards, with the exception of dissolved copper, which they don't consider a health risk. And I was just wondering why, you know, your data suggested that it was 70 times, uh, you know, over the the uh, cons- what is considered safe, public health safety, and their results were so markedly different. What do you think explains that? Um, just a simple location and timing. I see. Fundamentally, the DEQ did not sample when mm-hmm. and where coal ash released. They waited, and they sampled downstream. 
So let me give you some specific examples for Sutton. Okay. So Waterkeeper Alliance and the Cape Fear Riverkeeper sampled the Cape Fear River on September 21st. Uh-huh. That was shortly after the active ash pond became inundated and released its contents into both Lake Sutton and the Cape Fear River. So on that day, when all the coal ash was being released, we collected water samples at three of the largest Sutton Lake breaches and at, at one upstream location that was not impacted by coal ash. So we could compare sure. the upstream background sample with the samples we collected at these three large breaches. Our samples were analyzed by a certified North Carolina lab, and fundamentally, DEQ did not sample on that day. They have no sample results on September 21st when the ash pond released its contents into the Cape Fear River. They sample, um, for the, the soonest they sampled at Sutton was they sampled one Sutton Lake location the day after we did. Mm-hmm. After a lot of that pollution had already left Sutton Lake and was far down, <laughs> downstream and right. diluted by the record flood flows. Um, one of the EQ's sampling locations was near the Duke Energy at regular outfall on the Cape Fear River. We just didn't see a lot of coal ash there. Uh-huh. So it's like they went to where there was hardly any coal ash, and that, right. that's where they sampled. What, why, why is, what's the motivation for that? <clears throat> I, I think what they're trying to do is um, test after the effects of dilution occur. Uh-huh. Um, and what, so we, they, that's their goal, is to test, you know, whether the effects of all that, those floodwaters dilute the heavy metals enough that at some point downstream, the river is meeting water quality standards. And our goal is different. Our goal is to document what levels of pollution have entered the river from these facilities. So we go to the source of the pollution, we test where we see the pollution, and then we test a clean upstream background sample so we can compare and contrast and then just document the added pollution that we see from the spill. So we have to kind of wrap it up here, but I think... You know, I think the, the the main thrust of my interest in this is what what impacts do these repeated uh, breaches of coal ash, and then of course you've got you've got the manure lagoons that all flooded, which you know Charles Bethia from the New York New Yorker magazine uh, covered that quite extensively, um, and then on top of that you have other chemical uh, impacts from. Um, from DuPont and Shamor, which are part of the problem, ongoing problems in uh, the Cape Fear. But uh, all of these things together, these are these are these are toxic substances, which are when when there is a flood, they they spread out across the ground. Am I right? And ultimately leach into the drinking water. So I, my final question to you, Donna, is like, wh- what's what's the final verdict on the quality of drinking water and the quality of agricultural water um, in that area that has experience these repeated floods? Well, in the short term, the CDC is warning everybody to stay out of the floodwaters because so many sources of pollution have contaminated them. Yeah. 
Um, and in the long term, there's just going to be some long-term studies that are needed. So let me give you some examples of some of those sure. that have happened in the past with coal ash and some very important case histories that give us a clue, okay? Um, so between 1976 and 2006, millions of fish were killed and 17 species were completely destroyed wow. while two species were rendered sterile in Blues Lake, North Carolina. After pollution from coal ash ponds, systemically and over a period of years, added a lot of selenium to that reservoir. Um, so that's been well-documented in peer-reviewed journal articles. Another case involving Duke Energy is the Heiko Lake example. Between right. 1978 and 2005, millions of fish were killed, three species virtually eliminated, and two species had significant population losses as a result of multiple and successive years of coal ash uh, uh, heavy metals from coal ash, specifically selenium from coal ash. Um, from 2000 to 2007, on Mayo Lake in North Carolina, thousands of fish were contaminated. Um, it caused $80 million of economic damage to the fishery there, again, because of selenium from coal ash. Um, in Indiana, uh, from 1997 to 2010, at the uh, Gibson Lake and Cane Ridge Wildlife Management Area, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did a, a long-term study. They documented that thousands of fish were contaminated and the fish population was severely reduced. They issued a fish consumption advisory and the lake closed to public fishing in 2007. These yeah. are all Duke Energy facilities. Right, right. The most recent study was on Lake Sutton. It was by Dr. Dennis Limley. He released a study of Lake Sutton in 2013. His study confirmed that Duke Energy's toxic coal ash had killed more than 900,000 fish and was deforming thousands more each year. And um, he analyzed more than 1,400 fish from the Sutton Lake in 2013 and found disturbing mutations of the heads, mouths, and spines and tails in several species of fish. So what these important Duke Energy case studies tell us is that is the legacy of coal ash on aquatic life, yeah. and specifically on fish. And so what we need in the aftermath of Hurricane Florence are long-term studies of all the pollutants that are now finding their way into our estuaries um, and rivers uh, to determine the long-term impacts. Yeah. Well, I'm going to let uh, let it drop there. <laughs> I, my jaw is on the floor, okay? I just took notes on all of this. I mean, I, obviously, the guy that I'm going to interview from uh, the DEQ is not going to be able to address this because he's already informed me that he knows nothing of coal ash. Um, we're going to be talking it's about... It's interesting that they selected someone who knows nothing about coal ash to do yeah, the interview with I you. thought so, too. But, you know, I, I, I took what I could get. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, Donna, we are going to be talking again because um, sure. as as someone has described North Carolina as essentially the, the national cesspool because you guys have been uh, basically, allow, you know, your state has allowed so many polluters uh, so much impunity to pollute. Um, so we'll talk again about water quality issues because I want to stay in constant contact
contact with the Waterkeeper Alliance and, and you are my conduit. So thank you so much for joining me today and um, I'll be in touch. We'll, we'll speak again soon. I'm sure of it. Thank you, Katie. Appreciate thank you very it. much for your time. I appreciate it. All right, bye-bye. Uh, thanks uh, for listening. Stay tuned. We're going to have a quick sponsor drop, and then we're going to have um, my next interview, which will be uh, with the Department of Environmental Quality, a man named Joe Reardon, uh, and he is going to talk about the impacts on um, on uh, uh, you know agriculture in the aftermath of Hurricane Florence. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. So um, we're after the break now, and we are going to be speaking with Joe Reardon, who is the Assistant Commissioner of Agriculture for Consumer Protection in the state of North Carolina. And he's going to talk a little bit about the um, impacts of Hurricane Florence on the agricultural community in North Carolina, um, which is is huge. North Carolina is one of our major ag-producing states, and um, these repeated floods, I have no doubt, have had just disastrous uh, consequences for your farming population. So, Joe, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, why don't you start by telling us what you do, and then we'll talk about agriculture in your state. Okay, first, thank you so much for your interest in what's happened here in North Carolina. I am the Assistant Commissioner for Consumer Protection, so I'm over all the regulatory programs here in our state, as well as the programs that we would use to respond to any kind of natural disaster. And so that's part of what I do every day. Wow. So <clears throat> just to give us an idea of what the social and um, and economic impact of Hurricane Florence on your you know local farming communities. Well, North Carolina has about an $87 billion agribusiness industry. It's divided up on the animal side. About 66% of those gate receipts are in the animal industry. About 33% of that is in crops. Uh, so together they make up at the gate over $10 billion. So wow. agriculture in our state is really very important, especially in the southern parts of our state. And was that the parts of the state that were the most heavily uh, inundated by the floods in after Florence after Fl- Hurricane Florence? They absolutely are. They were the ones that we have a large portion of our animal industry there. Also, we grow a lot of our agriculture commodities, if you will, kind of east of I-95. And so this particular storm dropped, uh, some say, 11 trillion gallons of water. Mm. Uh, and that's uh, they've actually done the math, and that's about 218,000 bottles of water <laughs> for every person in the entire United States. Oh, my so Lord. So a lot of water. That's an awful lot of water. So, so what happened to the farm? Like, okay. 
Okay, so I know that most people are familiar with the issues around the um, the animal agriculture and the lagoons breaching. Uh, at the hog farms, that was heavily reported. Nobody really talked much about what happened to the poultry industry. Can you describe a little bit of um, where did the hogs go? You've got yep. 9.3 million hogs. I looked up the USDA stat on that. Um, and you have many, many millions of chickens there. Wh- wh- how did farmers protect their livestock? Well, they went to work early. We asked the governor to give us an executive order eight days in advance of the storm so we could load these animals up and ship them out of state. So for the swine industry, a lot of them went to Iowa and other states. In many cases, they didn't come into our state in advance of the storm. On the poultry side, about 1.5 million birds were carried to slaughter early. And so in both cases, on the swine industry and the uh, poultry industry, they were actually able to get those birds out of those houses that may be in harm's way. And we can talk a little bit more in detail, but the industry really reacted proactively. They, they placed fuel, they placed feed in those areas that they thought they would be issues with having access to roads. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very proactive in, in many of those. I'd like to talk with you a little bit about the lagoon issue and clear yes, up a little bit of that, I would, too. I would love to talk about that. We have about 3,300 lagoons in North Carolina that service our swine industry. Uh, this is actually a good news story. Over 99% of all those lagoons in our state were not affected by this storm, meaning that they were properly constructed, they were constructed on the highest part of the property. Mm-hmm. And so in working with our DEQ officials over at Division of Water Quality, and environmental quality. We've actually verified in communication with them that the statistics that we have, only three lagoons in the entire state ruptured during this 1,000-year flood. So we think that that industry did some preventative work. They actually reduced the levels in those lagoons. They monitored them throughout this storm. They communicated with us. They communicated with our other sister state agency that has regulatory oversight. So there was a lot of information reported out there that just simply wasn't factual. Oh, really? Like, um, where where did you see those reports that weren't factual? We had seen in some of the articles that there was lots of uh, ruptured lagoons in our state. In fact, that wasn't true. Uh, there were only three, and in fact, the biosolids in those lagoons stayed in those lagoons or directly adjacent to those lagoons. We just had a lot of fresh water in our state, in some cases up to three foot of water. And no matter what your industry is and where you live, there's flash floods. There's also flooding to come out of the rivers. So on that portion of the industry, uh, again, uh, we think the industry responded in advance of the storm and during the storm quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering what happened. Um, I know that the media reported that uh, 5,500 hogs, which out of the number of hogs you have in the state is pretty amazing that only 5,500 perished, um, and that 3.4 million chickens were also lost in the flood. And I'm just curious, like, were they carried downstream? I mean, did you guys, did you find like big piles of dead animals that, as the floodwaters receded along with all of the fish? Because of course, everybody saw the photographs of all the dead fish on the highways and stuff. I mean, that was pretty intense. Yeah, that, that's a great question. We only had one swine farm that in fact that were that was flooded in which any of the animals actually got out from. Uh, they worked all around the clock, 24 hours mm-hmm. a day, putting up lights and other things to attract the animals. At the end of the day, there was only about 200 animals that was lost. They were able to recover all of those, and that was a lot of work through the Department of Agriculture and Industry responding. Um, and so we were able to get those animals and, and get them out of harm's way. 
Uh-huh. Uh, that's on the swine side. On the poultry side, we did lose about 4.2 million poultry. They did stay wow. intact in their houses, so they wasn't going down the waterways in any way. I and see. and where the houses collapsed from tornadoes or high winds, we went in and worked with them to euthanize those animals in a humane way. And something we're really proud of, and, and unfortunately, when you have any kind of animals that, that are lost like this, how you dispose of those in an right. environmental and a public health way is extremely important. And I'd love to talk with you a little bit of what we do here, here, here in hear. North Carolina. Tell me, tell me. Absolutely. Well, you got a couple of options when you have a disaster where you have that many animals that have perished for one reason or another. North Carolina and Matthew done something that had never been done in the United States before in the way of a natural disaster. We put put to use a composting program where we bring compost on the farm. We push it in the houses. We bring the birds out. We build these windrows with compost. It goes through a heating process. And actually, it doesn't have any odor to it whatsoever. It mm-hmm. ends up creating a product that can be environmentally used anywhere on the farm. And so in Matthew, we did a composting process for 1.8 million birds right there on the farm. We will do that also with 4.2 million. Mm. We've actually carried out to the farms over 1,000 loads of carbon material. So we'll go in. We'll actually capture that leachate in those houses with this carbon material. We'll bring that back out and help build windrows on that farm. And then we will stay with that process for 21 days. Mm-hmm. to make sure that it's effective, that it reaches the proper temperatures, and that it's verified so that it can be used on agriculture land. We think it's innovative. Um, we think there's two core tenets. We want to protect public health, and we want to be good stewards of our environment as well. So we're real proud of this process. FEMA has approved it, and we've actually delivered over a 1,000 loads of compost or carbon material to these farms already. Wow, that is very impressive. So I'm assuming that this is already in play because now we're how many days out since the, um, I mean, it's what, three weeks now since the flood? It is, and uh, we started right away. Mm-hmm. And then show you, we've actually de- delivered more carbon in the last eight days than we did in four months with Matthew. And so it's a very uh, innovative process. It's, it's quite unique. But at the end of the day, it protects two things. One is the environment. And the other is public health. We can bring these birds in. We can put them in this compost pile. We can turn it two or three times over a 21-day period. And at the end of it, it creates something, that a soil amendment that you can use actually on that farm. And so mm-hmm. it eliminates the need to go to landfills. It eliminates the, the need to have any burial on that farm. And so we have a process we think is just really a good steward of the environment. That sounds great, Joe. So... Let's let's go back for a second about um, things like when the manure, uh, you know, lagoons breach or say like all the, you know, millions of tons of poultry litter. Um, <clears throat> and those those things, I'm assuming, like eventually find their way into some of the waterways. H- how do you feel that um, the Department of Environmental Quality is able to kind of monitor and um, inform the public about potential water safety issues. Are you seeing a lot of water safety issues in the wake of these floods, or do you feel like you guys have a good handle on what's happening? So, so let's talk about that a little bit. Great, yes. great question. As it would relate to the litter from the poultry, so not only will we compost the birds themselves, we will compost the litter in those houses as well. I see. And so none of that product's available to leach out into the streams or in the environment. None of it will be buried. Actually, the birds their litter, and all the contents of that house will go through this composting process. So 
that's a very good use of that material in an environmental friendly way. Yeah. So we don't have any of those issues. Okay. As it as it relates to the hog lagoons themselves, what we know is that if you dump 30 inches of fresh water in those lagoons, and they all have free bore, so there's a period of space between the top of the water level and the top of the lagoon. If it's filled with rainwater, then it's then it's rainwater. And so in the three that we did have breached, and, and this is in consultation with our DEQ, our public health officials, the majority of all those biosolids stayed in those, in those lagoons because it's at the very bottom by weight and design anyway. And for what did came out, it stayed right in the proximity of those lagoons. So we really don't have that. You heard about it. You may have even seen some photographs. In many cases, it's just simply not representative of, of this hurricane whatsoever. I so see. you don't have that amount of of uh, water coming out of those lagoons, going into our streams, going into our creeks that otherwise may be represented. It just simply is not factual. I see. Um, let's talk a little bit about the economic impacts of Florence on both, you said 66% of the state is involved in animal agriculture, another 33% of your agricultural community is row crops. So let's talk a little bit about those, uh, about the row crops or commodity crops. Like farm, you know, crop insurance is going to cover some of the commodity crops, but what about the other farms? And what about the guys who did say, for instance, lose 20 or 30,000 chickens? Who is, who's going to compensate them for that? That doesn't come under a farm bill crop insurance plan. So is an integrator going to take care of that? And who's paying for the cleanup? I was wondering about that too. Does the, does the company involved like a Tyson or a Smithfield, are they helping to uh, defray some of the costs of this? Or is that an entirely taxpayer funded effort? A lot, a lot of great questions there. So let's talk a little bit <laughs> yeah, about their losses. Yeah, great questions. <laughs> a little bit about their losses. Okay, so when we yeah. look at the sweet potato industry and the soybean and the cottons and the peanuts, this storm could not have come at a worse time. In yeah. many cases, there's been no harvest whatsoever during this storm. If you look back under Matthew, it come a little bit later. So they were in the process of harvesting these commodities. But in our state, nearly 100% of these commodities were in the field. Yeah. Well, According to the law, and we surely support that, if any of those commodities have been covered with floodwaters, you can't use them for human food. That's right. And that would be true of the sweet potatoes. The, it would be true of soybeans if it was in contact with floodwaters. It would be true of peanuts as well. And so a large portion of those commodities are still in the field and, and will be unharvestable. And you look at sweet potatoes, we estimate about $180 million loss. If you look at the economic multiplier, I mean, what does that mean to the surrounding communities, those people that service the farm equipment, those people that sell fertilizer, those people that help in the community there, uh, sell the trucks that you'd use on the farm? That's a half a million, $500 million loss just on the sweet potato industry. Yeah. You look at soybeans, $202 million. You look, that's how much we think was lost, nearly 100%. That's another half a billion dollars. Cotton, yeah, 135 huge. million. That would be if you add the economics of that, it would be another 340 million dollars. And so the total loss to the row crops is probably about 1.1 billion dollars. Mm. If you put an economic multiplier to that, it's going to push up to three billion dollars. Right. That's a lot of money for the farmer to have lost. Yes, it's a big amount of money for the community that services that farming community to lose. And so the question really becomes, how are we going to keep these farmers farming? Right. You know, the, the staple of any country is the ability to feed itself. 
and we are no different in our state or the nation. These commodities represent the top producers, sweet potatoes, number one producer in the United States. Yeah. And and we're number 10 in other commodities and such. But so, you know, how do we keep the farmers on the farm? If, if this was a one-year issue, then maybe insurance and those kind of things can work. But we suffered these losses in Matthew. Yes. Then last year was a poor year on prices and yield. Then we come in this year with, with Hurricane uh, Florence, and yes. you put all that together, and the question is, how do we keep these farmers farming? And that means it's going to take some insurance money from FSA. Yep. It's going to take some monies from federal crop insurance, but it's also going to take some help from our state legislature as well. I can tell you, we have to keep our farmers farming. Because one of the best things you can have is an abundant, safe food supply, and that means farmers yes, have to farm. And so that's where we are with that. It's devastating. And, you know, the one thing, you know, as a country you don't want to lose yeah. is your ability to feed yourself. Correct. And it starts right here. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of, of the farming community, and I certainly support what you're saying there. Um, and so what about the farms who are involved in it? Because we've got to leave it here in just a second. But um, I just wanted to ask you, what about the guys who are, invo- are contract farmers for, uh, you know, Smithfield or Tyson or any of the big integrators there? Who, who is going to help them, uh, you know, build back up after these losses. I mean, you're talking about, you know, I mean, every poultry farm has, you know, anywhere from five to 20,000 birds on it, 5,000 to 20,000 birds on it, for example. So when you lose your entire, you know, bird load there for one cycle, you have lost your payments for your, you know, upgrades and all the other stuff that those integrators demand from their front contractors. So who's, who's helping them out? Are the integrators uh, coming up with some uh, insurance payments, or are they bailing these guys out, or are they just going to let them twist? Well, no, that's a great question. It's one that's been on our minds, because there's two <laughs> questions there. I'll bet. You keep having great questions. One is the infrastructure. You know, how many barns were lost and how, do, how they're going to rebuild those. So the infrastructure is a question. The other side of that is lost revenue. Right. Uh, these farmers, that these the end farmer where the rubber meets the road gets paid if they produce a live bird and sell it back to the integrator. That's right. Or produce it for the integrator, and they get paid based on the growth of those birds. So if they die, then they become property of that grower. Yes. And in this case, if they're lost, they're property of the grower. There is some monies available through FSA in which they're giving 75% of the fair market value of that bird. Okay. And so we're going to be looking at the integrators and FSA to make sure that they do the right thing for those poultry farmers and that they get their fair share of that because, yeah. as you said, they lose one or two flocks of birds. they got payments to make, and they're going to need that revenue to do that. So we're going to ask that our integrators and FSA work together to make sure that they do look after uh, those farmers. Yes, I'm counting on you, Joe. I'm expecting yep. great things from you and your department to make that happen because I think the contracting contract farming system is, is – um, Deficient in many ways, and that is one of the most glaring examples. <laughs> is that there's no legal? They have no legal. I just want to make this final point: they have no. These integrators who are making billions of dollars in profit have no legal responsibility to bail out their contract farmers under. In the case of of something like this, of a natural disaster like this, am I right, Joe? Well, we don't know what each individual contract is. Um, because that's an agreement between the integrator and, and the farmer. Mm-hmm. 
But what we are absolutely committed to is that we look after that end farmer, and that's what you're speaking to. Yes, sir. Uh, we're going to make sure that they lost one flock of birds or two flocks of birds, that, that integrator, and with the insurance available through FSA, do everything they can to help that end grower because they're the ones that, uh, in this case, have lost their barns. Yep. They've lost their birds. They're devastated with floodwaters they didn't ask for. Yeah, and uh, so we're we've got our eye on that. We are watching that closely, and you can rest assured this is not something that we will not stay attuned to. Okay, Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time on the phone, and um, perhaps we'll speak again in a few months, and we'll see what the progress is going on there. But in the meantime, I really appreciate your time, and uh, take care. Have a great day, and thank, thank you, you, folks, for listening today. Um, this is part two of a series on North Carolina and the aftermath of Hurricane Florence. If you want to listen to part one. Um, you can just go right back and do that. Thanks for listening, folks, and thanks to my sponsor. So long for now. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.